This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing, and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am your host, Josh Patterson, and with me today is Mark Feldmeyer. Mark, how are we doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me, Josh. Great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for uh, you know coming on today and, and hanging out, spending some time, and also for the kind of flexibility um, that you offered with your schedule when I <laughs> when I had to bump our conversation. Um, so I appreciate your graciousness in that in that regard. Yeah, yeah so um, just for starters, kind of like podcast 101 type stuff um, for our listeners who might not you know be familiar with yourself or your work, could you just maybe give us a little bit of a background of uh, who you are and what kind of you know things you find yourself doing? Absolutely. I am uh, currently uh, the lead pastor at a United Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, just outside of Denver, uh, St. Andrew United Methodist Church. I'm a United Methodist pastor. I've been a pastor for um, 31 years, nine years at St. Andrew. And uh, prior to coming to Colorado, I'm a native of Southern California, and I was a pastor uh, of two churches, one in Orange County, California, and one in San Diego, California. North San Diego County uh, and Encinitas. So um, I've been here nine years and uh, lead a, a, a wonderful church, a Methodist church that uh, is uh, intentionally progressive and inclusive and uh, generous and welcoming. Uh, and it, it, what we call in the Methodist tradition, a reconciling church, which is uh, intentionally open to all people and inclusive of um, 
of the LGBTQ especially. Awesome. Yeah, I I had spent a little bit of time um, working in a Methodist church vocationally uh, when my wife and I lived in South Florida. Yeah, um, I was a uh, what was my title there? Student director, student youth director, something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. During my during my time there, um, and it was right around the time during um, I, like during I guess it was called like general conference when there uh-huh. was a vote around um, the LGBTQ kind of questions, and that kind right. of didn't really go how uh, people thought it was going to. Um, and the, the UMC that I was a part of was also, uh, I guess you said called like a reconciling church. Um, they were open and affirming. And, um, you know, my my buddy Chad was the worship pastor. He's openly gay um, man. Mm-hmm. And so that was like a particularly um, like interesting, and that sounds too cold, but like interesting kind of experience to have is not someone deeply connected to the UMC. Um, mm-hmm. But also just to see kind of like the pain and anguish that came with that from like different members in the congregation, the pastors on staff and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. it's been, uh, it's been an especially traumatic um, four or five years and uh, in the Methodist uh, church and things are uh, shaking out um, and um, people are finding their places and spaces. And uh, it's good to be uh, on the right side of history. Uh, yes. Yeah, I currently, um, so I was, I was in vocational ministry for about six years and ultimately ended up leaving for a variety of complicated, uh, reasons and became a brewer, like making beer. (laughs) Awesome. And I did that for like three years, but now I actually just started, um, at a tiny little Episcopal church as their parish administrator. Yeah. Uh, and that has been interesting. There's definitely some overlap um, from the, you know, the Methodist church uh, within the Episcopal church, but um, it's also like a progressive affirming space. And it's been, it's been interesting to kind of like risk myself in that, you know, direction once again, um, yeah. back into kind of like church world after the kind of things that have happened, but it's been a really good experience so far. I've been there for like probably a little bit over a month now. All right. So some of the some of the landmines and some of the wonders as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Oh uh, yeah. But so um Mark, you recently had a book come out called Life After God, Finding Faith When You Can't Believe Anymore. And one thing that I'm kind of passionate about here, um, at Rethinking Faith, but just in general, is kind of the power of story. Um, and so I really like, uh, engaging guests in such a way as to like couch the conversation, um, kind of with, uh, some of their story, if they're comfortable with that. And so you wrote a book called life after God. And so I'm curious, um, what, what in your story kind of leads to writing a book with a title like faith after God? Yeah. 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 I think what you're naming is the, uh, the book is somewhat provocatively titled um and and that's both intentional but also there's a double ring double ring to the title on the one hand what we're talking about is uh, um living living a life after the god that you can't believe in anymore and and that means a departure from some of the more orthodox 
established um, doctrines and dogmas that we've been told we have to believe in order to be Christian. The 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 other ring on that um, title is the word after implying uh, the the work of pursuit, and so uh, as we leave behind that one God we can't believe anymore, we're pursuing a God that that we maybe sensed has always been there all along, but we haven't been permission given permission to pursue, and so so there's that, and the, and you know as it relates to my own story, it is. Um, it's a story that's been unfolding for about 30 years and um, and began, as I talk about in the book, in the opening chapter, um, my experiences at Claremont School of Theology in the 90s with some of the great theologians in the process movement, including uh, David Ray Griffin in particular and John Cobb and uh, how they had a profound influence on me in redefining my faith and uh, getting me on that journey. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I love the the kind of story that you um, open the book with, and uh, as I was reading, um, I was very curious as to what professor at the school you were <laughs> talking about. I'm not going to ask you to name them, you know, publicly because you obviously chose not to do that for a reason in your book. But um, I was like racking my mind trying to see, like, okay, so like about what time would Mark have been there? Who was teaching uh-huh. at Claremont at the time? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some it's, people it's have a fun, yeah. a fun story. Some people, some people know that who it is, and others suspect who it might be. And uh, and I, I was intentional about leaving his name out because um, he's somebody I, I I I value and honor greatly, and um, wanted to protect him a little bit. But but he had a profound in, impact on my life, and that story, that opening story, was 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 somewhat traumatic uh, in terms of the crumbling of my my. Um, my, my, the faith that I brought to seminary and, um, and that journey that it, it launched me on was, uh, was transformative. Yeah, I think too, perhaps maybe that, um, story gets at, and maybe not correct me if, if I'm wrong, it kind of gets at the, you make like a distinction in your title. Um, cause you say finding faith when you can't believe anymore. Yeah. And so I like that differentiation between faith and belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe one way to um, demonstrate that distinction would be to say, like, in that story uh, with this professor who kind of uh, perhaps shattered your belief in a certain kind of God, um, but in in turn, that kind of um, then pushed you into like this faithful pursuit um, in a life after, right? Trying to, to, um, you know, following after God, trying to, to search. So is that like distinction fair? Oh, absolutely. I think it, it's a departure from that place of certainty toward, um, a, a deeper understanding of what, of what faith, uh, especially from a new Testament sort of perspective that, that, uh, that word in the Greek pastuo, uh, which, which we've interpreted often. Well, you find it in John three sixteen, the famous passage, that whosoever believes in him, and and so we immediately think that is some rational um, intellectual assent to a particular set of beliefs or doctrines. When the word really implies more one of, of deeper trust and believing on, or um, being a part of uh, the, the 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 journey with with God, and so. Absolutely. That that was the moment when I 
had to leave behind what I thought I knew and what I thought I was certain of uh, to, um, to to find a God that was more believable. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, I mean, I didn't have the same kind of like, you know, uh, finger gun story with the professor that you did <laughs> to kind of, um, to kind of spur that on. But I, I definitely have had, and I guess even continue to have these many, like, um, like a death of God in the sense where it's like, okay, my understanding of what I think, you know, that word God means, um, having like that kind of die reemerging into like another kind of understanding for then that to have like another kind of like mini death. Um, Mm. and almost just to this point of, of trying to, to, to pursue after, um, Mm. a more beautiful image of God, um, one that I can trust and one that, you know, I can love and, and, and worship and things like that. Um, and I think perhaps for listeners as well, uh, they'll probably be able to relate to that, um, to some extent, right? Um, Yeah. I think the, what, what I encounter with folks that I both work with and, and friends and colleagues, I think that journey for a lot of people begins with the, the the conundrum of theodicy. And the, I talk about that in that opening chapter. For me, that's sort of what what sort of brought the, the Jenga tower down for me was this idea that um, there's some bad stuff in the world going on and um, globally, locally, and personally. And and all of it at once was happening in my life. And, and I was not able to resolve that paradox of the um, all-powerfulness of God, uh, who, uh, according to that doctrine of omnipotence, could stop things from happening that are bad, and the all-benevolence or all-loving nature of God, um, who wants the very best for us. And so many people, especially who are in the process theology world or open theism world, would would kind of begin that journey with that with that paradox and and have to find a way to redefine the nature and power of God and um, embrace more fully the, the love of God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, for you then, what, like, what are maybe some uh, key aspects or um, some aspects you think are worth highlighting that relate to this kind of, um, to like your understanding of the the nature of God that kind of doesn't look like uh, the one that you initially started with? Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly I think I brought I brought into my journey when I began seminary this idea of of God's being able to intervene supernaturally, unilaterally in the ordinary events of the world. And while I uh held on to that belief um all my life up to that point, I can't really ever remember thinking of moments when I had ex- actually experienced that personally or even in the world. And um I spent the first four years before that in undergrad, majoring in religious studies, studying uh, not only theology, but in particular the Jewish experience in the Holocaust, and um, trying then to um, to still try to reconcile this 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 conundrum. Um, and so what what I immediately began to understand when it comes to the nature of God, and, and of course I'm still understanding this and 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 trying to integrate in my life, but but this idea that um, that it's not to say that God is not powerful, 
or even a su supremely powerful. It's to say that the nature of God's power is one that is more generative and more persuasive and less coercive and unilateral so that um, God doesn't make us do anything um, that we don't want to do. Um, and you could even argue that God doesn't have that kind of power. Um, uh, and uh, folks like Thomas J. Ward and, and others would would uh, would say that very emphatically. God can't do that. Um, and I, I would affirm that. I, I think uh, we can begin with understanding the persuasive nature of God, who is um, ever with us, but also ever before us, wooing us, uh, beckoning us, calling us toward um, greater um, experiences of becoming. And uh, and that's the God that I think I, as I discovered that nature of God, I I could look back over the course of my life and see that kind of God at work always in my life. And uh, and I continue to feel that today. Yeah, I, um, I you know, I too kind of started with the, like the problem of evil that kind of, you know, broke a lot of things for me. And ultimately, it came to kind of like a process, relational understanding of the divine, um, introduced first by uh, Thomas J. Ord, uh, before mm -hmm. I knew who Tom was. Um, I picked up his book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, like right out of college, um, just because I wanted a book about God being love. And when I pulled it up on Amazon, that's the one that I found. Um, and so for me, kind of coming to the understanding of, um, you know, this this God that you're you're talking about, um, you know, a God who is love, a God that is non-coercive, um, etc. It kind of ultimately became a like wow, this is so beautiful that it ought to be true kind of thing for me. And then yeah. on days when I still have a hard time finding like belief, right? Um, it's the faith or like uh, Aaron Simmons, he's a, a philosopher and friend of the podcast. He defines faith as like risk in a direction um, mm -hmm. and like ask yourself like, okay, what is worthy of like risking yourself towards? And that kind of like process relational understanding of the divine is one that I think is worth risking myself towards. Um, Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, and it's kind of been the role it's played for me. And, and when I talk to people about, um, about, you know, essentially what we're talking about is this work of deconstruction and reconstruction of our faith. And, um, and I hope that my book does both, but but it is, uh, it has been described by others as as a book of apologetics, so to speak, in the sense that I am presenting, I think my um, my understanding of a, of a God that is is worthy of our love and worthy of our um, of our devotion. I um, I think what you're naming though is this: there is uh, we have to give ourselves permission to just let go of those things that aren't worthy even though that um, they're sort of loaded into our uh, religious, you know, backpack and we've been carrying this stuff around forever. And so to give ourselves permission to let go of that, which doesn't feel life-giving anymore. And that certainly doesn't serve us uh, in terms of empowering us to make a difference in the world and, and work for shalom in the world. Um, how do, how do we uh, just simply turn our gaze toward that, which as I say in the book, gladdens our hearts and, um, and 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 gives us life and joy. Yeah, and uh, 
an interesting word um to that you've you've used a few times and also you have a whole chapter in the book about it um that like it carries baggage sometimes for people which is that word call and so um you know i i know my wife uh noelle um you know had had an interesting experience one time when uh we were about to move um back from the state of florida to maryland which is where we're from and she was really sad about leaving her uh job at this like really awesome animal shelter she had in uh florida and like one of her coworkers uh told her was like oh well like your work is just a job your husband actually has a calling oh. and so that that like where she doesn't like it because <laughs> yeah. it kind of it it seemed um mm-hmm. you know like that she was being written off and so when you think of call um like the kind of way you present it in the book is not it's not negative it i don't think it carries the same kind of baggage mm-hmm. um so i'm just interested when you think of of the call of god what what kind of does that mean to you yeah, what comes to mind immediately is maybe what I would describe as sort of the the impulse toward becoming, and um, and and that I think is both an internal um, impulse that that originates from our own heart or consciousness, if you will, but it is also, as I argue in the book, it is it is external to us in the sense that it's bigger than us, and there is, I think a call that resounds throughout the universe. Um, and, and that call, um, we, we, we see that call in the opening verses of the creation poem of Genesis in which God uh, says, let there be light. And as I talk about in the book, that, that, that phrase, let there, appears in the justive mood, which, which really is not a coercive, you must do this. It's not a command or an order. It is simply a it's simply an expression of what could be. It is, you, you could become this, you could do this. And that voice is spoken to the uh, the tohu vabohu, the, 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 the soupy mess of the primordial, um, you know, um, chaos. And, 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 and so we have a, we have a faith story that begins with this idea of of a call that transcends us as persons that's throughout the universe that heard and that all creation is responding to. And that at any moment, um, any of us and any of all creation can finally say no and um, and and resist the call. And as the ancient Hebrews would teach, there, there, there could always be this moment where all creation could say no, and this whole universe would return to the tohu vabahu mess that it once was and so this is all held together by our um our faithful response to the call toward becoming more and um as we would say more in the process moving toward novelty and adventure and zestiness as whitehead would say and so um the intensity of experience toward becoming uh who we might be and who who we could be that's the call and and yeah Man, I uh, I get so annoyed by people who who think, as you expressed with your wife, that 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 calling is somehow religious in nature. Um, I think it transcends religion. It it's it's profoundly spiritual, but but it transcends our forms of religion. And uh, to your point, my wife works with. Uh, she's an educator. 
She she's a behavioral therapist with kids with uh, on the autism spectrum, and I know she lives a calling because every day she comes home, uh, either worn out, sometimes crying, uh, sometimes elated, but pouring herself into this as she gives herself toward these kids, and so yeah, calling. Yeah, you can be a banker, you can be a trash man, um, uh, you can be a gardener or a pastor uh, or a podcaster, right? Or a brewer. That's a great calling. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, just the more invitational kind of um, vibe that that has. Uh, but even too, like I think of, um, you know, something silly like I don't know, you go and you see, um, I don't know, like a play or a musical and just like, you know, something about that grasps you and you see like the lead character or something. You're like, wow, this person is doing exactly what what they're to be doing right now. Do you know what I mean? Like that's kind of like another they're living into their calling, so to speak, or something like that. Uh, And so I think there's yeah, if if that makes sense, these. just these moments of of beauty that um for whatever reason i find myself moved by um i kind of think about uh, calling in there sometimes as well well and i think to that point i think what we're talking about is is universally experienced even and maybe even especially outside of the christian um hebrew experience right like i talk about in the book um the Japanese culture has that word ikigai, which is, you know, your your reason for getting out of bed every morning. So yeah, when you see that that performer on stage and you realize, I mean, I've had that moment. There's a moment uh, here. I'm in Colorado and my first concert at the Red Rocks, which is you know a, a must a must go to venue um, for concerts. I you know my first concert at the Red Rocks was Tom Petty just before he died, and and I had that same like elation watching this human being perform like like such a professional and it was transcendent and um he was living his calling too yeah yeah that's that has to be a cool experience that um seeing a concert at red rocks is definitely on my list of things to do (laughs) Um, unforgettable yeah 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 i bet um Excuse me. And so one thing that at least I kind of um, see them tied together, uh, calling, and then also in the book, which you call like um, the aim of God. And the reason I kind of see them going together, I'd be curious what you think is like, if um, so in the in the book, you essentially say like, the, the aim of God is for Shalom, right? Um, yeah. And so then that call uh so like we have this kind of like teleological goal of shalom and then that call kind of functions as like an allure into like hey look at this thing that is you know good and beautiful true um shalom does that do you think they kind of play together like that i think i i think all of that which calls us toward becoming is 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 leading us toward that experience of shalom whether that is uh, shalom at the deeply personal level or shalom at a global or even cosmic level. Um, you know, we, we, we think sometimes we understand 
this concept of shalom as being peace or well-being. I think, unfortunately, that um, that often misses the mark because shalom, from a deeply Hebrew perspective, understands that true peace comes from the bringing together of opposites. And so, uh, as I talk about in the book, even a, a, a Jew who greets you with the word shalom also says farewell with the word shalom. These, this, this idea that in our comings and our goings, two of the most opposite experiences in life, uh, shalom is, is what holds them together. So that when we think about the struggles in our personal life, um, we can't experience true peace until we, we are reconciled with that part of us that is, um, that is not at peace uh, with ourselves or with the world. Uh, and I think that vision of shalom is expressed, for example, in the great vision of Isaiah, the prophet, who talks about the lion laying down with the lamb and um, the, you know, the child playing over the hole of the asp. These are like the most completely divergent, opposite experiences uh, with sheep and lamb, uh, sheep and lion lying down together. Um, and yet the vision of Shalom, the biblical vision of Shalom is that that is the ultimate aim of God in the world. Uh, and, and so it translates to our own lives, but it translates beyond us to a global experience of Shalom. Yeah. And so every calling, every beckoning is leading us toward that reconciliation of opposites. Yeah, that uh, I love the the reconciliation of opposites bit, especially too, because it makes me, um, or like it it adds some kind of like, I don't know, it adds something to you know the teaching of Jesus to like, hey, you shouldn't just love you know your neighbor, but you should also love your enemies. Enemy, yeah. And that kind yeah. of like enemy love, uh, I feel like is also like a call into. Um, that kind of like bringing together of of opposites. If you want to look at an enemy, is right that kind of like opposite yeah. counterpart kind of thing. It's radical. It's a shalom is meant to be a radical uh, reality um, that um, that takes more than our own our own unique individual efforts to accomplish. It, it's there has to be some divine collaboration and participation in that for it to happen not miraculous but but um but deep collaboration yeah and the the collaboration piece there too also i find um inspiring and also i think has the power to be deeply transformative because then it's not this kind of um, I can sit on the sidelines and read my Bible, be nice to people, say my prayers, um, and just, you know, pray that God comes and fixes everything all of a sudden, but rather it's like this invitation from, from the divine that kind of like, psst, as you know, you say yeah. <laughs> in yeah, the yeah. book, um, and then when we have the ability to either say yes or no, and then, mm -hmm. um, do we want to give into that, that, uh, vision of shalom do we want to participate um and i think that like hey like you have a role here too um is something that felt lacking to me in kind of the um more like evangelical tinged version of faith i had been you know handed growing up 
And I think what you're capturing is, you know, this journey toward this word that we get, another word we get mixed up with sometimes is this word salvation and, um, and how we personalize and individualize salvation as this experience of being loved by God. I talk about in the book that, I mean, that's certainly part of the journey. And yet so many Christians start and end there and, but it, but, but the fullness of salvation um, leads to shalom, which is we understand that God not only loves me, and not only loves those that um, that are like me, but God loves other people too, um, which means I'm sort of not so special. And uh, God loves Gandhi, and God loves um, those from other traditions and and those from other experience outside the tribal sort of parochial uh, boundaries of our of our faith but ultimately genuine salvation which achieves shalom says god loves my enemies and so maybe i should too and maybe i should reorient my life toward loving them uh, to the best i can um, and to work for their well-being too Uh, um, so yeah this is this big stuff yeah, absolutely it is. Um and I I like, you know, you kind of bringing salvation into the the mix there. That's a um a question that I think you know, oh, I know personally like experientially I get asked a lot. It's like, "Okay, Josh, this like process stuff is nice, but what about salvation?" kind of thing. Um and so I I I love, you know, thinking about salvation as um not necessarily something that happens, you know, post-mortem after we die, although maybe there's something to that, but rather it's like almost like a way of like life, a way of being and living in the world. Um, and that that's being offered to us, right. From the, the aim of God, from the, the, the whisper, the call of God, um, Mm -hmm. into this like better way of being human, uh, that is kind of built on this idea of like, um, shalom um or like wholeness is is often sometimes how i like to think about it um and it it it, i mean i've said this a million times on the podcast so listeners are probably tired of me saying this but um the way that's most helpful for me to think about um sin or at least where sin comes from is this kind of like fracturing of Mm. shalom or like fracturing of the wholeness in yeah. such a way where if I believe that I'm separate from you, then I can cause you harm. You know, I could um, be racist. I could, you know, like step yeah. on you to get that promotion, etc. Um, yeah. But it's like that fracturing of the wholeness then is like where the sin arises from. Or um, Yeah. The uh, theologian Platinga says, describes sin as the culpable disturbance of Shalom. And I, I think that for me just has a ring of deep truth to it that that I think you're naming right there, um, that that fracturing, the impediment uh, that sometimes is subtle and sometimes profoundly intentional uh, and systemic and um, yeah, the culpable disturbance of Shalom is um, pretty good. Yeah, that I really like that culpable disturbance of Shalom. Um. I'm writing that down for later reference. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting too, because I think 
that then also can apply to uh, our relationship um, with the divine. Like when when there are different obstacles that are put in in the way of having this kind of um, experiential relationship, something like that with the divine, that too, at least in my opinion, seems to be this kind of like culpable uh, disturbance of shalom. Um, where we somehow end up uh, believing that we are also separate from um, the divine, you know, in in some kind of sense. Um, I don't know. That's just something that came to mind. Yeah, you know, I just just preached uh, this last week's sermon was on was on the Exodus story and um, and that moment when the Hebrews find themselves on the shorelines of the Red Sea. And I and and so that Red Sea sort of is is the symbol of of the disturbance of Shalom or the impediment towards Shalom. And um and sometimes that's real and physical and systemic in the world like racism or homophobia or um sexism. Uh, sometimes it's it's as personal as addiction or or um, anxiety or depression or, uh, you know, um, the things that we've gone through our trauma. And so um, there's a lot of, there are, there's a lot of resistance uh, to the call towards Shalom, some of it self-created and uh, some of it um, created by forces beyond ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's, the one that you kind of named there about the the kind of even the disruption within ourself mm-hmm. um is one for me that I've been uh trying to focus on and, and recognize more recently um because previously I'd, I'd kind of talked about the I call it like the myth of separation between um you know us you know me between you and I between creation and, and between the divine. Um, then also I recognize like, there's also this kind of like separation from myself almost, mm-hmm. um, that like is a lot of the kind of, um, inner work that can be done through something like therapy or contemplative practices, or, um, you know, just having close friends that you can talk to or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of like internal shalom, um, is something that, you know, I think it would be fair to say a lot of people um, today probably feel very deeply. Um, and I think that that is a is a big cause of of tension um, for well, people in the world today. It's it's really interesting the way you describe some of those strategies for cultivating shalom in your life. They're all profoundly relational, um, whether that's with a therapist or with friends or um you're, you are in relationship with somebody else, um, which is the only way to get to Shalom, I think, ultimately. But we, um, but what you're describing, I think, f- sort of fits into that whole process or Whiteheadian worldview of that the fundamental nature of the universe is one of events or occasions or experiences, if you will, as opposed to our modern worldview that says we're all just a bunch of atoms. And... Um, it's hard to make atoms um, come together, and it's so. As long as we see this world as as just being uh, a bunch of substances 
uh, that are disconnected or sometimes loosely connected, but not really relational, it, we can't get there. We can't get to the vision of Shalom that you're describing uh, and, and some of those strategies, I think, are they're very curious uh, and insightful about how to achieve that. Yeah, and I, if I remember correctly, you kind of touch on um, some of that divide that kind of stemmed out of even just like a philosophical distinction with like Descartes. Or at least yeah. Descartes like often becomes like one of the whipping boys for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't um, all that bad. Right, right, right. Uh, Descartes did many great things, but the that kind of like um, bifurcation of nature mm-hmm. kind of thing, or um, even this is somewhat off topic, but also related. And it's just because I have ADHD, and this is what I've been reading a lot of recently yeah. is uh, study of like consciousness stuff. Yeah. Um, and even like Galileo's error um, mm-hmm. is a book that uh, I've been enjoying. And I kind of like the idea of like pan experientialism, yeah. um, you know, a la David Ray Griffin kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, uh, and this is the bad thing about ADHD is I don't know why that was important. Well, uh, yeah, but yeah. Mainly, we, <laughs> yeah. We, we live with this sort of presupposed dualism that separates body and, and, and spirit, matter and spirit. And so like, look, every Sunday people walk in my church and the last thing I want them to do is feel like they have to leave the real world to come to church to, that they have to leave behind the physical world to experience the spiritual. Uh, I want to bring the physical into the spiritual and the spiritual and the physical and, and find ways to say there are really aren't distinctions there that it's, that it really is ultimately all spiritual. Um, if you will, um, but we we do this. We 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 divide up our world into things that are that are purely physical or scientific, and those that are spiritual and religious. And um, we'll we'll just never get we'll never get there if we uh, if we stay in that world. Yeah, which um, one of the things for me that uh, I kind of came to, um, you know, after you know, the kind of death of the the God that I was originally handed um, was the, uh, this idea of like panentheism, mm-hmm. uh, which you, you talk about in the, your chapter on divine presence, mm-hmm. um, which for me, it was always really, I always had a hard time understanding the divine presence bit. I remember asking questions about it in youth group, <laughs> very distinct, uh, distinctively to it, to the youth pastor, Justin, um about like well wait a minute you're telling me that we are like separate from god but also god is omnipresent and god is is everywhere i'm not like and you said something about sin and like god can't be around that but you know and so it's always very confusing only to find out later that like panentheism is not necessarily something foreign to the the christian tradition um and so i'm wondering like how how is that like understanding of divine presence kind of played a role in your yeah and it's not that far from sort of the the panpsychism or pan experientialism that you're mentioning just a moment ago that that there's this understanding that we are in the experience of god just as the experience of god is in us and i think we would a lot of christians would affirm the latter but but wouldn't quite understand how how our experience is in uh, and held within the experience of god and 
I think that's um, that is sort of the entryway toward understanding um, things like just the, the nature of prayer, for example, right? Um, Marjorie Sue Hockey, one of the great great uh, process thinkers, wrote a book in the '90s. I just reread it um, on my sabbatical this summer. Into the presence, uh, this idea that um, that prayer is entering into that experience of God. Uh, it's 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 not presupposing that there's a difference or a distinction or a distance between me and and that which I'm praying for, but that what unites me and that other person I'm praying for is the presence of God, and that we're both in it together. Um, I mean, it's just fascinating, beautiful. It's a beautiful understanding of prayer, and if if we understand that God has experiences. Uh, and that we influence God, that changes how we perceive prayer. It changes how we um, how we interact with others, knowing that um, that I mean, this is weird. I mean, maybe <laughs> I, I, a good friend in California, one of my best friends, uh, hadn't talked to him in a while. One night last week, I was thinking about him, like on a Tuesday night. I was thinking about my good friend Bill, and I had to call him, and I was going to call him the next day. I get up in the morning, he calls me. Uh, at nine o'clock in the morning, right? Um, what is going on there? Um, you know, I is it a coincidence? I think some from the more scientific modern worldview would say it's just coincidence. Um, but maybe there's something else there. Um, we're we're all participating in the experience of God at once in ways that we, we can't calculate or measure um, or comprehend. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful story. Um, and I, yeah, and I've, I've heard, you know, similar stories to that. And I do always kind of ask myself like, Hmm, what is going on here? Uh, but yeah, I, I love that idea. Actually, it's funny friends, um, joke with me. There was a, a period of time when I was like really actively pursuing understanding of things like uh, spiral dynamics, um, mm -hmm. and things like that, which I, um, you still enjoy i can talk about it it's it's fun uh but i would always reference like collective consciousness and like so if somebody would tell yeah. a story like that they'd be like oh collective consciousness josh uh -huh. we know shut up <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i think i think just how you named it is so beautiful that that idea that we are participating within you know the experience of the divine um and even within that too you mentioned um as you're just speaking the kind of uh um like the um dang it all right so what i'm trying to say is, is you have reference uh like god is like a co-sufferer um or mm -hmm. yeah that that we our experience has the ability to influence um god's experience yeah. and so that's kind of where the the suffering bit was coming from but you talked about it in the book in such a a beautiful way i really appreciated um just this real like not just in the sense of like God is a friend who's there to like hold your hand while you're suffering, but in a very real um, yeah. sense, like that suffering is felt and experienced mm. by the divine. So yeah. the divine and, and, knows what it's like for Josh Patterson yeah. to feel suffering or tragedy, in, in, et cetera. Like integrated into the, into God's own experience. So that's different from, from Plato's God, who sits outside of time and space and looks down 
upon all this sort of unmoved, as we say, the unmoved mover, um, who um, sometimes cares, but um, only from a distance. And so, yeah, we're, we're talking about a whole different understanding of God that um, that's, that's pretty near. Yeah, the kind of understanding of God that's uh, is like closer than than our very breath. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, which is cool because I I know um, within the book too you did some cool work with uh, some of the like the Greek and Hebrew language um, around yeah. breath, and uh, right. that that was a a fun bit. Um, and, and I mean, even too just the kind of thought experiment. Um, maybe it was called like caesar's uh last caesar's, breath or something like yeah, that last yeah, yeah 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 that i hadn't heard of that uh like named that before um mm-hmm. but you know I, I had heard you know similar things about like being stardust or being present at you know the the big bang or something like that um yeah. but just that idea of breath and then like kind of applying that to jesus i don't know that was really cool for me i i like that yeah. uh yeah and none of that is I, I mean i think it's another expression of whitehead would would say nothing is lost um in our experience that that it all that it all um it all remains in some way and um yeah, i guess my point in the book on that story is or that illustration is just science has has language for that um and um you know we're we're maybe we're talking about the same things uh, just from with different language. Yeah, uh, I think so. And I, I think that too is part of one of the reasons that I, I have found um, process so alluring, so to speak, yeah. um, <laughs> is that kind of resonance with, um, with science, but also before kind of embracing and exploring this like process world i very much was um in the the world of like the mystics um yeah and a lot of the way that the mystics speak also play very nicely with with process and then also with like some of the you know science and this kind of thing and so it um yeah it's just interesting to see this um perhaps different names or different ways of naming a similar experience uh, or something like that. I don't know. And I think what we're describing is is actually a return to a more biblical, if you will, certainly a more Hebrew understanding of God that has been um, that has been experiencing layer upon layer of Greek philosophical concepts that have uh, obscured the purity of some of that experience. And and redefined it in ways that um, that are no longer working for a lot of people um, and a growing number of people, uh, sadly. Yeah, I um, I agree, and I and I mean just even ex- experientially for myself, but also from talking with um, listeners or like other podcast friends and like their communities that they have kind of cultivated. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems to kind of be a uh, like a a thing that's kind of like sitting at the top of the surface right now, um, which is cool yeah. because you have a wonderful and beautiful book to offer into that kind of conversation, um, you know, well, kind of in this this moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, 
a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One that we're we're living sort of in two worlds, and but we haven't moved into the third world. And then, and one of the world is where most evangelicals still live, which is a pre-enlightenment world that um, that still wants to affirm uh, complete supernaturalism and and um, omnipotence and some of these big concepts we're talking about. And then there's this other post-enlightenment liberal mainline mostly world that um, that has uh, fully embraced science and the modern worldview as sort of the the ultimate truth. And I think what we're talking about is and hoping to create is this new this new expression of faith that transcends that whole debate and 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 doesn't have to um, doesn't have to be anti-science. In fact, can um, can take science with it into um, a, a new and richer expression of a faith that, again, ultimately is um, is 4,000 years old and um, we just left it behind. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, the kind of rejoining or like, you know, for some of the big flashy buzzwords, like a more like that, like naturalistic understanding like naturalistic dipolar theism or something like that right for the nerdy people yeah. <laughs> uh yeah it's 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 such a um i don't know again that like that vision for me is something worth risking myself towards uh because i find it beautiful and compelling um and so ultimately for me today in in my own you know journey of becoming um it is ultimately geared towards like you know, that, that image, um, or that kind of that story or however you want to phrase it, uh, because it, I do find it so compelling and beautiful and it, it does make me want to get out of bed in the morning. Right. Uh, yeah. and work towards, um, an image of Shalom and, and offer that not just for myself, but, uh, hopefully for everybody, right. For all of, all of creation, uh, including yeah. maybe our, extraterrestrial friends or something like that if that's such a thing <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah we uh, sadly so much of our conversations about faith are centered on the human and on and on the earth and um we forget that there may be other god may have other loves out there <laughs> that are um that are not uniquely human or earthly um, and well i guess to kind of uh, maybe like land land the plane, so to speak, or or kind of wrap up our conversation. Um, I'm just curious what thoughts you might have towards uh, something like eschatology uh, when we think about a God who is not, um, you know, coercive or manipulating or has the whole story already written. Um, what kind of uh, yeah, when you when you think of of um, eschatology what kind of thoughts uh, come to mind for you yeah i think uh, toward the end of the book i talk about the distinction between uh how e ephesians for example describes um essentially how this is all going to end um and it's it's quite different from what most would argue from a more evangelical perspective uh would argue is is sort of the rapture um uh, rescue planned for for the worthy and the holy, and so this vision that I lay out in in the book is 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 really one eschatology leads this idea that this this 
journey we're on ultimately and universally leads toward um, the, the divine gathering up of all things so that nothing is wasted and nothing is left behind uh, to um, and, and that that's a direct contradiction to the you know the the left behind book series that uh, you know that is completely unbiblical and yet um super profitable uh for uh for pop culture christians but the true vision that we find in scripture is one of gathering up and again another expression of shalom uh, that that all of this ultimately leads or wants to lead towards shalom if we're if we and, and creation is willing to cooperate and collaborate in that journey and um nothing has to be wasted and nothing has to be left behind um and i think that that challenges conventional notions of hell and and even conventional notions of heaven uh, and um uh, at least in terms of sort of framing those two concepts uh in in physical space uh language right um and and so um yeah, I think that's that has been when when people ask about process theology and eschatology, and is there really an eschatology in process thought? Um, I think there is. It just it 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 doesn't look as linear as what um, most Christians describe today, you know. So yeah, I would affirm this this idea of gathering up um, all things in the divine. Amen. Well, it's a beautiful vision. Uh that I appreciate as well. So <laughs> not that I'm the final arbitrator of uh, all beautiful <laughs> yeah. decisions or we're something all, like that. We're all just grasping <laughs> at different parts of the elephant, right? Uh, yes, so. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, I've, I've really enjoyed this um, conversation. I, I really in, enjoyed your book a lot. Um, you write in such a way that's it has this very like pastoral and genuine kind of feel and vibe to it. Uh, but also in such a way where you take um, something like, you know, we've said it a few times, process thought and kind of, which is notoriously difficult to grasp. And you kind of offer it in this like beautiful um, way that uh, like, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be confusing and um, yeah, accessible. you know, yeah. yeah, accessible is a good word. There we go. That's what I was looking for. And so I really, I really appreciated it. Um, and I know I said I was going to add, that was my last question, but I, I want to ask you one more thing just to kind of yeah. tap into um, that pastoral side of you. Um, even though I would, I would argue this whole conversation is, uh, has been that. Um, but for listeners who maybe are um, kind of wrestling with or, or trying to put something back together, or maybe are still in the process of, of deconstructing um, less beautiful images of the divine uh what advice might you have or or what's something you might want to say to them um as they embark yeah. on that journey two thoughts i have one that i describe in the book and one that's more fresh to me um the one is that um i think we ought to sit with all of those questions and doubts and paradoxes that we struggle with and then pick through them and um, first, find that in our faith, which we can live with, and not only live with, but that which gladdens our hearts, as I say, and and sit and behold them and give thanks for them, for their generosity, and for the way they accompany us on our journey. 
and then to look at those things which uh, which are difficult to believe, but maybe we're not just quite ready to leave behind yet, and to sit with them, but but to allow them to be, because sometimes they they can work in in ways that um, maybe later on we don't need them and we can leave them behind, but but they can create the tension through which and by which we um, we we learn and engage uh, and experience the divine in more robust ways. And then all that stuff that we just find traumatic, the stuff with teeth, the stuff that says, um, you know, you can't do this um, or else. I think as I described in the book, you just pick those things up by the tail and you walk them out the door and you you drop them on the patio and you close the door. And, um, and then you get back to living a faith that is believable. And I think you can make the journey the whole way just like that. So that's one thought. The other thought quickly is just that I've been struggling with this deconstruction, reconstruction language because I've used it and, and it's appropriate. I, I've also began to think that it's interesting. One of the most popular dreams that humans have is, is this dream. And maybe you've had it, Josh, um, where you, in the dream, you are in your house and you, you suddenly go down a set of stairs or down the hallway and there's this whole part of the house that you'd never been in before. I don't know if you've ever had that, but it's a frequent one for me. And it's, I read this because I was concerned about my mental health. Um, but it's one of the top 10 dreams that humans have. Like they, they have a house with rooms that they've never been in and, and they've been there all along, but they just didn't know they were there. And maybe that's sort of the journey of, of reconstruction to redefine it as, as just moving out of some rooms that are too small for you and finding those rooms that have been there all along that are just waiting for you to occupy and explore. And, um, and those rooms, if they're safe, uh, open the door and, and walk in. So those are, those are some of my, um, for what it's worth, some of my advice. Yeah. Thank you. I, the house one is funny. I definitely have had that kind of <laughs> dream experience. Good, I'm not the only one. <laughs> right. Yes. You're not the only one. The research appears to be true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the rooms thing is so interesting for me because I did kind of grow up within um, evangelicalism, which I think is like very much an ahistorical kind of um, mm-hmm. faith. And it kind of sets itself up as like, as the like this is Christianity. Um, And so then when that broke for me, it was like, well, I guess I can't be a Christian anymore only to find out that like, Oh, well, wait a minute. What are all these other rooms that I didn't know about this whole time? And um, just kind of recognizing how deep and wide and vast the, the tradition is and how much room (laughs) within it there is even for, uh, you know, people like myself. So I've I've appreciated yeah. that and I like the I like the room imagery. Yeah. Good. Cool. Well, um, Mark, again, thank you so much uh for your time. Thank you for your book. I'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes for our listeners. Um but is there is there anywhere else you might want to direct uh listeners to maybe like follow along with your work or connect with you, anything like that? Yeah, um, you know, I've got a website, markfeldmer.com, which is uh, has a lot of resources and some other content that I've written. And it's easy enough for folks if they want to uh, follow along. 
this is the kind of stuff I preach. And so I preach it every week when I'm preaching, which is about 40 times a year. And so people can follow along with some of my sermons and messages through uh, gostandrew.com, which is our church website. And, and they can subscribe and get all that material as well. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to, to link those things uh, for you guys, listeners, as well in the show notes, just for your convenience. Um, awesome. Yeah. Again, Mark, thank you. And uh, listeners, thank you so much for hanging out today. And um, as always, guys, go in peace. Peace.